0: All right, um, so I chose the lamb uh, because it very much represents innocence, um, and it does this quite well uh, by using a very simple, uh, you know, rhyme sequence and everything um, to kind of represent the uh, child. Uh, sorry, and. <laughs> Right, I just I, God, it, why is it it was so quiet in here until we started recording and now it's like the loudest place on earth this is not just uh, sorry um, all right so I chose the lamb uh, because it does a really good job of representing the Romantic period um, and it turns away from reason um, and kind of turns toward naturalness uh, and imagination and kind of uh, a sense of innocence because, you know, the lamb is a representation of innocence, it's a representation of simplicity and naturalness. Um, and it's kind of a symbol of childlike wonder as well. So, and all of these are key characteristics of the Romantic period. So he's, uh, he's kind of asking the lamb, um, you know, all these questions. Uh, Little lamb who made thee, does thou know who made thee? Um, and it's uh, kind of implying a lot of childlike innocence and ignorance um, with those questions, not assuming that he doesn't know, you know, kind of things like that. Um, you know, little lamb will tell thee, little lamb will tell thee. Uh, he called by name for he calls himself a lamb. So he's cl- comparing the lamb to Jesus. Um, although it's interesting because usually when there's a, re- a lamb in poetry, it's referring directly to Jesus. Uh, however, it's this isn't referring directly to Jesus because it's saying he is called by thy name where uh, he calls himself the Lamb. Um, So, I a child and thou a Lamb, uh, we are called by his name, little Lamb God bless thee, little Lamb God bless thee. So, it's comparing the the Lamb to Jesus, but it's not actually calling the Lamb Jesus, which I thought was interesting. And another thing that made me really like this poem uh, was the rhyme scheme, um, which is kind of simple, childlike, um flows very well um and it's which is another uh characteristic of romantic poetry which lyric poems simple uh simple things bringing the speaker to some important you know, like yeah you know, uh like basically simple things bringing uh you know joy to the uh the speaker right so you know, it's kind of taking joy and, you know, making all the veils rejoice, right? Making a lot of joy in the lamb being there. there. Um, yeah. Is that five minutes?
1: Yeah. And, oh, sorry. Uh, I believe so, okay. according to the timestamp. Um, yeah, I think, like, even the description of the lamb as mild would compare to Jesus, because that reminds me of the Line the Christmas song, "Holy Infant, so tender and mild." I don't know if that was written before or after this poem, but that was just another thing I found. And um, I think like the descript- the choice to include a lamb and stuff like the stream. Um, I think that matches the element of romantic poetry that has to do with nature and the glorification of nature. So yeah,
0: yeah, I just said it better myself.
2: Yeah, I agree. yeah it's really interesting that um you would say that the lamb is turning away from reason because so that was written during the it's a part of the song of innocence right um and that's kind of that entire section of poems is about how like like blind faith in god and religion and just trusting everything that they tell you and in a way yeah like you're correct that is a turn away from reason but i think he also does that as um that leads into the tiger really well, because he's presenting this certain viewpoint where you don't question and what you're told, and then he switches into this other poem where he's kind of bringing reason into the like the analysis of what's going on and his own um like personal beliefs, so he's wondering now, you know we have um this like beautiful this cute lamb that God created. And it's like, how could God, who created this this perfect little lamb, also create this horrible beastly tiger? Yeah,
0: yeah. Or,
1: mm-hmm. yeah I'm looking forward or, to hear what you have to say about the poem "The Tiger" because I don't know; I think it sounds very pretty. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely, like.
0: Um, I think William Blake. Does really kind of good a good job. Sorry, I, I just I think that William Blake does a really good job with uh, You know, good sounding rhyme schemes.
2: Mm -hmm, I agree like I've read imagery um... oh sorry no no go ahead oh I
1: was just gonna say like yeah I read over my poem of course and uh your poems and I think all um all three of them were just pleasant sounding to the ear
2: you know yeah actually I I was kind of reading about um like the history behind the song experience yesterday and turns out that these actually had like like melodies like they're supposed to be sung So that makes sense you know if it's a song it's gonna it's called a Songs of experience but so it's literally supposed to sound nice when you sing it yeah that's that's interesting a good mm-hmm. so if we kind of jump into like the tiger discussion so what kind of stands out to me a lot about this poem is um at, at like at the very beginning you have this imagery tiger tiger burning bright in the forest of the night and that's i think very like potent it's a very clear image in your head like i would imagine like like a dark jungle and you have like flashes of this orange brilliant tiger like jumping through the jungle and this is pretty um characteristic of poem from, from this time period because a lot of them really return to like worship of nature and uh, you know, romanticizing the beauty of the national world because, um, the industrial revolution was at its beginnings at this point. So, you know, we have, we're seeing all this new, um, man-made stuff pop up. And it's all artificial. So a lot of poems kind of reverted to like this nostalgic writing about more simplistic nature and animals. So that's pretty, um, fitting to the time period he was writing in and a lot of his language is it's really pretty like you guys said and it's also pretty like emotive so you know th- thy fearful symmetry immortal hand or eye like it's very dramatic diction and um yeah I think that definitely adds to the feeling that it was like a really important thing that he's talking about and how this is this the subject matter goes beyond the tiger itself because it's kind of a metaphor right it's like a big extended metaphor it's not really super clear what the metaphor is for but i would say just kind of all evil in general because um if the lamb is good the tiger is evil so it's like why would god create both of these things if god is like all-knowing it's supposed to be helpful to humans And um, I guess the biggest part of presenting that central theme, which is the question itself, is all of the rhetorical questions and all of the question marks in the poems in both the lamb and the tiger. Because um, the speaker is addressing the tiger, because you can tell that because it's like tiger, tiger. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? So although they're addressing the tiger literally, I feel like, Figuratively, they're also addressing like the reader and the audience and they want you to think about these questions just as much as the speaker is thinking about them.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah, that was
2: pretty cool. Yeah, and um, one more thing that stood out is probably the most important part of this is a shift from what immortal hand or eye could frame the fearful symmetry to what immortal hand or eye dare frame my fearful symmetry? So, dare is a pretty powerful word, I think, because in essence, the meaning of that is, um, you know, who would do this? But by saying who dares to do this, it's like, okay, this is a bad thing. Like, why would you do this bad thing? It's a little bit accusatory, I think. It's not completely innocent in the question, you know, what dread hand and what dread feet. Like, it's, it's, kind of a more negative vibe to it near the ending. Mm -hmm. So if, um,
1: if you have nothing more to say about the poem, I'll move on to London, which is also a part of the Songs of Experience. So I'd like to begin with historical context and some facts about William Blake So um, this poem was published in 1794 with the rest of the songs of experience. So um, this was occurring, I mean, this was published while the Industrial Revolution was occurring. Um, That was around 1760 to anywhere from 1820 to 1840 in Europe and the United States. So um, that led to a lot of issues in urban areas like poor working conditions, child labor, which I'll return to later in the context of the poem, pollution and sanitation issues. um, And this attracted the attention of social reformers, but William Blake actually, um, he was considered to be a radical. So instead of reform, he believed that the social problems he witnessed required, quote, a complete liberation from existing political systems and a transformation of the sense of human potential, end quote. And my source for that was the British Library. So, um, he distrusted the monarchy, and he disapproved of institutionalized religion. He thought that it was, um, he thought that institutionalized religion exploited the poor, um, subordinated women, uh, violated (laughs) and breached like freedoms and liberty individually and repressed sexual energy and um, discouraged imagination and originality in the arts. So, Mm -hmm. Along the line of art, he was a strong believer in the importance of imagination, which contrasted with the enlightenment ideas of rationalism um, and empiricism. So obviously that is just a little back information why he's a romantic author, obviously, um, with the romanticism literary movement, placing a lot of emphasis on imagination and the background information about um, <clears throat> industrialization, problems with urbanization, Um, social reform and his radical political ideas will be important when we start talking about the poem, which is now. So um, as far as the author's purpose and sort of the poetic devices, so um, repetition might be the most prevalent literary device in this poem. So the word every is repeated seven times throughout the poem and the word mark or marks is repeated three times in the first stanza. So the repetition of these words suggests that the misery the speaker is observing is um, extremely prevalent throughout the setting. And I say setting instead of London specifically because the London of William Blake's time um, is distinct from the London of today. So, uh, diction is also a really notable literary device in this poem. And so, to talk about diction, I'm going to be referencing two phrases specifically, which is um, mind forged manacles and marriage purse. So, the word manacles refers to shackles, handcuffs, or chains. Um, so the phrase mind-forged manacles" suggests that the um, inhabitants of London are confined by their own thought processes as if the despairing environment has seeped into their minds and is now ingrained within them. Um, and then the marriage hearse in this poem is like, and these are quotes from the poem, blighted by the Harlow's curse. So the prostitutes in this poem Um, in a section of the poem have ruined their chances at marriage. However, the word marriage is paired with the word hearse, which is like a funeral car, Um, it carries coffins. So marriage is death, or at least associated with death in the context of this poem. So speaker's trying to say that um, in the environment that they're sort of trapped within, uh, whether a woman chooses chastity and finds a husband and gets married, or turns to prostitution, um, she can't escape this depressing sort of fate. So no matter what choices a person makes in Blake's, William Blake's London, they're trapped in an environment where this misery is all consuming and inevitable. Um, so that contributes to the theme that of constriction in the fall because this is really a, truly an inescapable environment in his point of view. And I think that's important when considering his radical views because um this poem is this poem is not hopeful. This poem does not leave off on any sort of positive note. And obviously William Blake, he was like that in his politics in that he um he did not believe that things could be reformed gradually through law. He was a believer in radical change and revolution. Um so, a little bit about how this poem relates to romanticism, besides William Blake's powerful imagination. so obviously, there's emphasis on emotion and emotional awareness, and then sensory details were really popular in um the romantic movement in literature. So he says, "I hear twice throughout the poem," and he describes like the auditory details, lots of auditory imagery, lots of cries, lots of sighs, just overall um of time." is a bad place. And at one point he actually mentions, like the historical context, I said I was gonna return to the part about child labor earlier. Um, At one point he mentions chimney sweepers. So he actually has a whole nother poem about chimney sweepers. Um, These were children that were like orphaned and church basically took them and um, forced them to do this chimney sweeping labor. And they sometimes, like they got stuck and they died. It was just poor conditions. That had lethal consequences. So, this poem is um, both a critique of urban society in his time and um, just the creation of this inescapable, almost maze like environment. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great analysis. It's definitely really effective in making you see, like, like, making you feel how he must have felt walking through and seeing all this, like, awful stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like, I just, I got the, I felt throughout the poem. Like, I imagined him, uh at first he's walking, wandering, and then he's, like, running, turning down different streets and alleyways, just trying to find some sort of positive image. And it's completely um,
2: deadlacking. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: actually almost chose this poem because... Uh, you know, I kind of you know felt like the uh the kind of desperation and despair of the people that he was describing because it's you know we all know it's been kind of a crappy year uh, you know, yeah, where it's kind of felt pretty hopeless and depressing and all that, so I almost chose it because of you know I could kind of feel their their hopelessness
1: yeah, that's a really good point, and how you know we're sort of going through a tough time in society today. Uh, so unless anyone else wants to say anything, does anyone want to say anything else? I'm good. Thank you for listening.
0: Bye. Bye.